This is Car Expert. One of the big things that Cooper is saying about this car is that, you know, it is an electric hot hatch. That was probably one of the main things that I wanted to test on this launch. Would you guys pay an additional 44k to have your Mustang Mach-E Shelby? It is incredible to me that Toyota is down 30% and despite that fact, it still has two of the three best-selling cars in the country. Joining us on this week's Car Expert podcast, Scott Colley. Hello, Mandy. And James Wong. Hello, hello. Uh, Scully, I, I just got off the phone to you before we pressed record on this podcast and uh, you were going to pick up a, a new press car and um, you gave this thing the beans on the phone to me. I'm like, oh, my God, what is that? Um, fill us in. Uh, yes, I, I, it's a BMW M3 Touring. It's a car we're very excited to, to see and to drive. Not allowed to actually talk about how it drives just yet. That's going to have to happen in July. Um, BMW was trying to launch the car recently and then it was launching it alongside a couple of others. They got stuck on boats. It just didn't quite happen. Um, but at this stage, we've got it for a road drive, for a video, and we're then going to drive it on track in July. I think that the highlight of this car that I can talk about is the fact that it's purple. Uh, it's got oh, a Thunder Knight yes. metallic exterior and then a white interior. Oh. And it is just a beautiful spec. It's got polished wheels and then the, the BMW special anniversary M badges. Um, the M3 is quite a polarizing car. It can be very in your face. But in this spec, it just, everything works. Um, and I know, Mandy, it works for you because you love oh, purple. No. Especially with the white interior. That's the exact spec I would have in a BMW. It's absolutely gorgeous. I just did a quick... Uh, a quick Google on it. It's very, very dark purple. Did it, it have is. black wheels? It's got um, essentially they're sort of polished. So there are black bits in them, but the highlights are all polished silver. Um, and, yeah, it, it really, I don't know, it just really pops. Uh, mm. I, I love black wheels, but for the moment I think they're a little bit overplayed. And on this car where the purple is quite dark except for a bit of metal flake through it, um, the yeah the, the the wheels just sort of set the whole thing off. Fantastic. Have you seen it yet, Joe? No, I um I got into this meeting room with my microphone before Scott got back, so I haven't gone and had a look at it yet. But I am very keen to see. See, I have seen. I think this particular car has been photographed outside the BMW office a couple of times that some of my friends have sent me, and it um it just the, I know exactly the color that that you guys oh. are talking about. It's a wonderful, wonderful color, and I think um I I've been speaking to the PR at um, BMW recently and commenting and on how he's done a really great job at ordering press cars that are in. Really Really cool specs because you know it's it's actually nice to see and photograph vehicles that are interesting to look at and not just in white. So uh, it was it was good to to hear that they've kept that particular vehicle on press fleet, and I, I assume mm. that the other um, new M models that are coming will all also be spec'd in interesting colorways, paints, upholsteries, however you want to say it. <laughs> yes. What do you think? Um, you, you guys might have to actually think about this one, but um, what do you think is the best color on a car at the moment? Funny you ask that because I feel like we were asked this question not long ago in a, in a very yeah. long story that we we published on the website. So I'll go first. Um, not that anyone asked, but one of my, one of my favorite colors on on the market at the moment is um, the olivine green metallic that Peugeot has on the new three hundred eight. So the hero color is actually the standard color, and it's this beautiful deep. Uh, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like it's really wonderful dark green that it plays with sunlight beautifully. It, it's suits that 
particular car really nicely and I did the launch so I saw the, the car in person first up and it was just stunning like I, I, you don't even need to like what Peugeot's designs look like the way that that car just you know like when you sort of so like what they say about certain celebrities or models or whatever that they're not necessarily classically gorgeous or handsome or whatever but when they have really striking details and they just have this like aura about them that's mm-hmm. what the the Peugeot 308 had when I saw it in this color it's like the car equivalent of big uh, energy sort of thing like it was just it just had a real presence about it and and the the finish is just gorgeous so I was a big fan of that for me, uh, I love Isle of Man green on BMWs. Um, I also quite like some of the blues that are out there, Hyundai N, BMW M, but mm. it's the Audi Python yellow. Um, we had an RS3 in that color earlier this year, and it's not a deep yellow like Mercedes does. It's not very metallic mm. either, but it's just really sort of bold. It's quite pale, and something about it with carbon bits on it, black wheels, bright brake calipers, it just highlights the car perfectly. I really enjoyed the color and we actually compared it with a yellow A45 and the difference in colors is really noticeable. I much preferred the Audis. Nice. Well, I've got to say um, my favorite one at the moment, and it's another green, is the one that uh, Croft recently drove, the uh, Jaguar F-Type 75 convertible. I think it, you pronounce it as Giola or Giola Green. Um, um, I, I don't know how to pronounce it, but I know the colour you're talking about. It's yeah, beautiful. It's, it's sort of like got a maybe grey shade to it. It's, it's quite a dark green. It reminds me a little bit maybe of similar to colours that Aston Martin have used, um, obviously not exactly the same, but, um, geez, it makes, that, it makes that car look extra sexy. Absolutely love it. Um, now, if uh, if you guys listening have uh, any favourite colour colours, uh, car colours, just shoot us an email, podcast at carexpert.com.au. We'd love to hear your thoughts. To talk about this week's car news, we welcome Jade Credentino. G'day, Jade. Hello, how are you? Very good, thank you. Uh, we might start we- off with some local news. Yes. Uh, looks like Ford Australia might be dropping some jobs. Yeah, that's correct. So Ford Australia will make 250 employees across its vehicle development and design departments redundant in the coming months. The spokesperson for Ford has confirmed that it will offer a voluntary separation program for approximately 250 of its 1,400 salaried product development and design employees. The latest round of redundancies follows cuts in late 2022 to Ford's Australian workforce. 120 contract staff were made redundant, once again due to the end of the pre-launch Ranger and Everest development cycle. It's worth noting that Ford Australia designers and engineers have also worked on various products for China, India and South America, which got never were sold here, including the Escort and the outgoing tourists for the Chinese market. What do you guys think this means for Australian manufacturers moving forward? I don't think this is a great surprise. Um, Work in general for companies like Ford now is cyclical and they're coming to the end of the cycle of developing the Ranger and the Everest, which obviously is a very intensive job. The platforms underneath them have also been well-developed. They've now been rolled out in the Ranger in the US, in the Broncos. So it's obviously a shame. These are people's livelihoods that, and they're going to be offered redundancy packages, but you know, people are going to have to find new jobs. Uh, But ultimately, it's also not unusual for at the end of a big project, jobs to be cut back in pretty much every industry, including automotive. Hmm. What are your thoughts, Jay? 
Um, you know, these things happen and we've seen it happen across various local divisions of global manufacturers in the past. Um, I guess for me, the one big part of Ford's local communications, especially in the last couple of years, is that it's the largest employer of local talent um, and having such a strong design and development and engineering hub here in Australia with, um, you know, the leading the development on T6, which is Ranger and Everest. Um, obviously, it's a very big project for the company globally and Australia plays a huge role in that and there is a lot of people that play really important jobs in that process. So it's obviously disappointing that there are going to be people losing their jobs but when you consider, you know, and this is something that we've spoken about a lot of times in the past is that, you know, Australian labour is expensive by global standards. It's, a, it's one of the key reasons why manufacturing is not done here anymore in, in to most capacity. And it's why, you know, you're seeing a lot of brands, you know, move their operations throughout the world because, they're, you know, they're a business and they need to make money. So um, one of the highest costs is going to be labour. And, and if, they, if that's what needs to be done, I guess, that's what the business needs to make the decision on. But, you know, I did a really fun story a long time ago where when Ford announced the closure of, the, of their manufacturing operations, I actually got to interview some of their, you know, their lifers, people that have been working there for 20, 30 years. And they always spoke very, very highly of the company and how they were treated in that process of being made redundant and, and sort of their exit from the company after, you know, decades of working there. And so I would hope and expect that, you know, the people that are uh, losing their jobs with this latest development will get the same treatment and and then that way there's you know there's no hard feelings after this kind of process so that's basically my thoughts <laughs> very good thoughts indeed um jade uh, looks like we've um we've got uh, skoda's plans for its electric car onslaught yeah that's correct so skoda has announced that the ENIAC and the ENIAC coupe will be refreshed and joined by a range of new electric vehicles including a wagon and a replacement for the current Karak. Skoda aims to have six EVs by 2026 that will cover all vehicle segments that are related to our customers, is basically what they have said. The first EV will be a compact SUV called the L Rock, which is due in 2024. It will replace the current Karak and measure about 4.5 metres long. It will be slightly smaller than the current Karak, which will roughly measure the same as the current Volkswagen Tiguan. Skoda will introduce a currented United small car, which will be its smallest and most affordable, which aims to be priced around 25,000 euros, which when converted to Australian dollars, sits around $41,000. For the full list of the Skoda lineup um, that is coming, you can head to the article via the show notes. Um, before its first generation of EVs arrive, Skoda will also debut new generations of its Karok and Superb, along with a refreshed Scala and Kamik. So there's a lot going on in Skoda. Um, what do you guys think will it look like in Australia and do you think it will pick up? Um, I was really interested to see this announcement because we've we've sort of seen Skoda lagging behind the rest of the Volkswagen group in terms of their EV announcements. The Enyaq um, and the Enyaq Coupe have been doing very well in um, Europe so far and they're pretty well acclaimed and we're waiting to see them arrive in Australia next year. But beyond those cars, you know, we haven't seen Skoda do like an Audi or a Volkswagen or even a Cupra where you've got like several different cars based on the MEB architecture being announced. So I guess this is a really big deal for, for Skoda and, you know, we 
covered a story recently where Skoda is actually lead, leading the development of the next generation of compact internal combustion engines. So they're not only putting a lot of investment into their next generation of affordable um, combustion motoring because, you know, that's a huge part of Skoda's market. You look at like the Fabia, for example, and, and that car and entry versions of its other cars are very, very important in, in, throughout Europe and, and the world. And so um, it was only a matter of time before we saw Skoda sort of step back into that affordable electric motoring because they've got the Citigo, which is basically an electric version, well, an, a reskinned version of the electric Volkswagen Up and the Enyaq, and that's about it. So we don't really have like an ID3 equivalent or um, anything the like. So it was a really exciting announcement, and it's good to see um, that there are so many different vehicles that are covering lots of segments. Whether they come here, I don't know. I think with um, Skoda's probably um, perhaps lagged behind a little bit because of their more affordable positioning within the Volkswagen group. They're probably the most hit by supply constraints when it comes to exporting vehicles out of Europe into Australia when they're trying to avoid hefty European Union fines for emissions. So I imagine that with the pending um, emission standards policies that the Albanese government is currently working on in Australia, we may see some more announcements coming for our market in the next year or so. And hopefully we see cars like these um, in Skoda showrooms soon because Skoda makes great cars. It's no secret. Uh, I think we, they have a very loyal, if not even cult following in Australia. There's a lot of really, really happy, loyal customers of the Skoda, Skoda brand. And so I think that it would be a real shame if we see these cars delayed for us for X amount of years when you know Europe's already getting them. So keen to see how it turns out. I think it's good to see that we're getting more eventually affordable options. A lot of the EVs that we've seen from the world's big car brands, and that includes Volkswagen, um, have been high-end things. The cheapest VW EV at the moment is the uh, E-Up, which we don't get in Australia, but the new uh, generation ID3. And even that's not a cheap car. Now that we're seeing the spin-off brands from Volkswagen start to reveal their takes on the MEB electric platform and on the formula, Hopefully, we get some more small, affordable electric cars that can just drag the price of entry down and make them more accessible for more people. So, I'm hoping they get here like James, but I'm also hoping they get here at the right price and hopefully open the door for more people to enjoy an electric car. <laughs> here, here. Uh, now, Jade, Sangyong wants one of its brands back. <laughs> Yeah, Which one? That's, 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 that's a good way to put it. Um, according to a Korean news outlet, uh, KG Mobility, as Sanyong is now known, is the preferred bidder to purchase Edison Motors and bring it out of receivership, uh, effectively flipping the script from a couple of years ago. So if you've been following this story, uh, it's actually quite interesting. A few years ago, thanks to COVID, Sanyong was first forced to file for bankruptcy um, after its parent Mahindra let go of the company. Edison Motors was chosen as the bankruptcy court's preferred bidder for Sanyong in October 2021, however, failed to meet payment obligations for the purchase. Fast forward to today and KG Mobility, aka Sanyong, is the now looking to acquire Edison Motors um, after it too filed for bankruptcy. So it's unclear what KG Mobility plans to do with the acquisition should the bid be successful by the courts. The auction is expected to take place in May this year with KG Mobility currently holding the highest bid. I love a good comeback story, but what do you guys think KG Mobility wants to do with the brand, obviously bringing it back? 
It is really interesting, isn't it? it it's uh, it's kind of poetic that Edison Motors was going to buy Sangyong and now Sangyong wants to buy it. Um, Edison Motors is quite an interesting company in its own right. They're a Canadian company and they make electric semi-trucks. So, I would assume that there is battery technology or motor technology that KG thinks would be relevant to it, that, that it thinks would be useful for Sangyong or the artist formerly known as Sangyong. Um, and that might be why they're trying to buy it. And clearly there was some synergy between the Sangyong brand and the Edison brand. Otherwise, Edison wouldn't have looked at Sangyong in the first place, regardless of who ends up buying who. There must be some sort of mesh that binds them together, I think. Hmm. Any thoughts, Joe? Um, I think for me, it's it's sort of it, like the others have already touched on. It's it's a sort of a funny flip on the script, isn't it? That they were once going to be bought out, couldn't cash the check that they wrote, and then now they're trying to be bought out by the people they were trying to buy. That's a real tongue twister now that I try to say it out loud. <laughs> but um, you know, it, it was really good to see that Sangyong got saved by KG Mobility, and you know, the rebrand and everything is interesting. And we're starting to see them bring out some new products now that hopefully will make their way to Australia. But you know, we've we've talked about this a couple of times on the podcast and it would have been a real shame to see Sangyong go um, given its heritage within the Korean markets, like the oldest Korean automotive manufacturer. It's got like a hundred year history or something like that. So it's, it's, it's a key part of the, the weave and fabric that is the Korean automotive industry, even though that Hyundai and Kia tend to get all the, all the praise. And so for, uh, we don't really know what's going to happen if they re- acquire Edison Motors. I'm not really across what Edison Motors does, but I imagine that with extra hands maybe or extra resources, we could see more stuff coming out. Um, Sangyong slash KG Mobility has that really exciting Torres coming soon, which I think will be a really great um, rebirth for them and starting a, a new era. So hopefully we can see with these this business acquisition that perhaps there's more th- cool things to come from the, the, the company. Mm, looking forward to seeing uh, seeing what the, what the future holds. Uh, now, Jade, we've got details on Shelby's first electric car. Give us all the info. All right. If you want all the info, Mandy, you, you got to stick with me because I've got it all here. So <laughs> um, Shelby American has is best known for tuning Mustangs uh, and the continuation of Cobras. However, it's now trying its hand at the all-electric Mustang at Mac. Only 100 packages will be produced with production starting in July this year. The package can be retrofitted into privately owned Mustang Mach-E's GTs from 2021 to 2023 uh, in select European countries. The package costs 24,900 euros. So when you translate that to Australian dollars, it roughly sits around 41,600. And that's without the car. Yes, uh, yeah, I was just about to tell you and, and, and then tell me what you think. The In Germany, the GT model currently sits at 86,200 euros. Um, but when you obviously combine everything in Australian dollars, you'll now be paying $144,100 for this car. Um, Shelby worked on reducing the weight of the electric SUV while also making it smoother and more distinctly styled. Um, Shelby has integrated a baller, Baller's active performance sound system, uh, which was revealed at the SEMA last year, 
its first production vehicle to use the system, um, which will generate a hyper-realistic ICE soundtrack that perfectly matches the EV motor. So that will be really interesting to see. Yeah, exactly what that (laughs) looks like. Um, It has a carbon fiber bonnet, a splinter, mirror caps and door trims, as well as custom lightweight wheels. As expected of a Shelby product, there'll be racing stripes and Shelby badging, while each model also comes with an official Shelby identification number and paid membership to the Shelby Team Club. Would you guys pay an additional 44K to have your Mustang Mach-E Shelby'd? (laughs) (laughs) Great question. absolutely would not. Uh, No. (laughs) Um, it's cool to see Shelby getting into the electric car game and it's going to have to as the world goes that way if it wants to remain relevant. But um, for, for now, I think the only Shelby I want is a Mustang GT350R or a Shelby American, you know, resto mod thing. Um, yeah, I'll have my Mustang Mackey factory. Thank you. I don't need to spend another, what was it, 40 grand for a uh, for a hyper-realistic ice soundtrack? I'll just put some, some pegs in the spokes, some cards in the spokes, and we'll do that instead. <laughs> <laughs> What do you reckon, Joe? Would you get it? Uh, I don't know if I'd get it. I, I, I think it's certainly very interesting that um, Shelby's finally, you know, done their first electric Mustang or electric car. Period. Um, and I guess mm. in in America, where there's a huge market for this kind of stuff, like every time you watch any sort of American TV, you see the roads in certain parts of America. You, everyone's got a modified Mustang. It's sort of like how here they ha- always, everyone had like a modified Falcon or Commodore or whatever. Um, they just don't put. Chevy badges on them, but the I think it's a really interesting thing to see. I, I, when I heard the name Baller, all I thought was like all those PlayStation Two games that I used to play, where you know Baller was one of the manufacturers of the exhaust tips that you'd put on like your Need for Speed or Juice Car or whatever. So that's a bit of a throwback, but. Uh, you know, it, it, it's at least a, a sign of what we can expect from tuning companies once internal combustion sort of ends. Because I guess for a motoring enthusiast, one of the key concerns about going all electric is the lack of sound and engagement and all that kind of thing that comes with modifying and, and tuning your car. So if this is the kind of thing that we're, we will see in the future... And it's good. I can't verify whether it's good yet because I haven't heard what this this sound is. But you know, it's it's exciting, and, and, and engineers must be having a field day with it. So, you know, keen to keen to see how it turns out. Absolutely. And to wrap up this week's news, we will talk about last month's new car sales figures, which we call VFACT. It was for April, uh, and uh, Scully. It looks like EVs did pretty well. They sure did, Mandy. Uh, It was another strong month in Australia just in general. Our sales grew 1.3% compared to the same month in 2022. Um, And the big drivers of growth were SUVs. Uh, Utes were down, passenger cars were down, and electric cars were up. Um, EV market share led by the Tesla Model 3 and the Model Y hit 8%, which is a sort of marker that 12 months ago we would have thought absolutely unimaginable. Uh, And it shows which way the market is moving. The big loser, as it has been the last couple of months, was Toyota. It is really struggling for supply and previously has given us a statement saying we anticipate deliveries to really ramp up in the second half of the year and they're still striving for a significant sales goal. But at the moment, they are really struggling to get cars into the country uh, on the back of issues at the ports and the supply chain and the factories and essentially every step of the way. God. Okay, so uh, let's take us uh, take us through all the listings. Uh, which were the, the better manufacturers? So Toyota, despite having a 33% drop compared to April last year, still had just around double the sales of the next best brand, which was Mazda. 
Uh, Kia came in third ahead of Hyundai, and that's been the way all year and late last year. So the little brother is well and truly on top of the big brother at the moment. And then Ford came in fifth. It was followed by Mitsubishi, which was down 30% on last year's month. Tesla in the top 10, um, ahead of MG, Nissan, and Volkswagen. So a few familiar faces there and a few less familiar faces there. Um, Tesla on the back of the Model S and the Model of Model 3 and the Model Y, excuse me, uh, is one of the big growers this year. The best-selling car in the country was the Ford Ranger, ahead of the Toyota Hilux by... Uh, 41 cars. So whichever oh, dealer wow. got those last few ranges out, well done. You propelled it to the top. The RAV4 came in third, the Tesla Model Y in fourth, and the Hyundai i30. Jade, I know you've got one of those in fifth. Um, rounding out the top 10 were the Outlander, the D-Max, the Hyundai Tucson, the MG ZS, and the Tesla Model 3. Um, it is incredible to me that Toyota is down 30%. And despite that fact, it still has two of the three best-selling cars in the country. It's just incredible the dominance the brand has locally. In terms of segments, uh, SUVs were up. Uh, They were up quite significantly. Light commercials were down, as were passenger cars. And sales were up in Victoria, Queensland, WA and the ACT and were down in the rest of the country. Um, Scott, obviously, there's been a bit of moving about uh, in terms of the standings and within segments and things like that. Were there any standouts within the brands and the nameplates that are worth noting? Yeah, good question, Joe. Um, Nissan is up significantly on the same time last year. Uh, on the back of the X-Trail, the Pathfinder arriving, it finally has some new product to sell and it's selling it. it was up 47% in April. Volkswagen was up 72%. And that's on the back of really strong supply of the T-Roc. Um, it also has the first Amarox arriving in the country, which are going to drive what Volkswagen hopes will be a much bigger year this year. Uh, Subaru was very strong, up 53%. And GWM, we're sort of used to this story by now, but up significantly, uh, up by 64%. So a lot of this is supply-driven. Volkswagen has had strong demand, as we know Nissan has, but now the cars are actually here. These brands are really cashing in and and looking stronger than they did last year. Other side of the spectrum, Mitsubishi down 30%, as we mentioned before. Toyota down similar. Uh, Mazda, despite finishing in second place, was down 6.1%. And then a couple of smaller drops in Suzuki at 4%, Mercedes at 7%, and sorry, Suzuki at 35%, excuse me, Isuzu at 4%, Mercedes at 7%, and Honda at 17%. How much of this is down to people not wanting the cars and how much is down to supply is up for debate. Um, Supply is still one of the biggest drivers of whether or not a car is selling well in the country. It's not about whether people want them at the moment. And Mm -hmm. with chaos at the ports, although we're hoping it'll clear and there is movement in the right direction, that will still be the case going forward. Um, Scott, you also touched on before how um, EVs had record market share and have effectively like tripled their market share compared to last year. Beyond the Model 3 and the Model Y, which were in the top 10 nameplates for the month, which is quite impressive, were there any other standouts from the EV segments that are worth noting as well? Yeah, so look, the the best-selling electric cars in the country are both from Tesla, but we're seeing a broader market push in the EV world. Um, The BYD Atto 3 finished 15th overall. And if you look at a segment that we've really seen as struggling recently, the the medium car over $60,000 segment, as VFAX call it, the C-Class and the 3 Series aren't really the hot properties anymore. The Model 3 has a 63.6% share of that segment. And then you look at the Polestar 2, the Hyundai Ioniq 6, and the BMW i4. Combined, those electric cars own 70% of the segment. So, the people who traditionally were going out and buying a three series are now buying an electric car. And whether that's because they want a sedan or they just want an electric car and 
a lot of the electric cars out there at the moment are sedans isn't as clear. It's going to something we're going to see play out, but it is a very interesting move. Um, 7% of SUVs we've seen sold this year are pure electric and at the moment, light commercial electric car sales account for such a small slice of the pie, they're not really worth measuring. But in the passenger car market in particular, which is an area that we've seen tumbling across the board, electric cars are driving a bit of a resurgence um, and it's giving BMW, Mercedes, Audi in particular competition from a totally different part of the market than they've previously seen. Well, if you've got any questions for uh, this month's VFAX, you can leave them in the story at carexpert.com today. It also wraps up this week's car news. Now, we've actually got Jade uh, hanging around after news because uh, I think we spoke a couple of weeks ago that you were going on something quite fun, the Isuzu iVenture. Was this your first off-roading adventure? Yes, it was. So previously, I'd always been a passenger um, and always wanted to get behind the wheel. But this was the first time that uh, someone trusted me with a very expensive piece of metal um, to, (laughs) I guess, uh, take it off road. And it, it was amazing. Was it as hard as you thought it was going to be? Um, I, I was saying to Scully earlier this morning, I didn't go in with any expectations on purpose. I think if I kind of knew what to expect, I probably would have talked myself out of it or taken like an easy route when, when I kind of got there. So it, it was really good to just basically get in there, kind of jump straight in. I think it's probably the best way to do it. And just kind of, I guess, whatever they said to do, it's really not that hard when you actually have the right people with you. So thankfully, we had two recovery vehicles. Uh, so if anything did happen, we could obviously get out of the way. Thankfully, nothing did. Um, but I had an amazing time. I learned so much about four-wheel driving. Um, and I also learned that pretty much anyone can do it. it it's really not that mm. hard once you get confident and once you've had a couple of turns at it. Um, it's actually really amazing. And the route that we did just made it all that much better. So, Jade, that's actually what I was going to ask you about. Where did you go with Isuzu and what sort of terrain were you taking on? Yeah, so good question. I have um, the itinerary right in front of me and the itinerary is like three pages long. So we covered a lot of the Victorian high country when we went. Uh, We started off in Bright, which anyone, if you are traveling through Victoria, definitely highly recommend. We went through the Mount Blue Rag Trail, uh, which I definitely don't recommend taking a non-four-wheel drive on. It is pretty intense. Uh, The first four-wheel drive experience that I had was about a 45-degree elevation um, and everyone had gotten out of the car while I was driving uh, to take (laughs) photos. So it was just me by myself and I think I took a video and it was just me like yelling um, yeah, some not so nice words. Um, but once you kind of get the hang of it, it, it was honestly, it was incredible. And these vehicles, we had a uh, MUX LSU, an MUX LSM, a DMAX LSU Plus and a DMAX X Terrain, all stock. Uh, they only had a tow bar, brake controller um, and 12 pin plug attached to them. And these cars are super capable, obviously. The way that iVenture Club works is it's um, primarily for Isuzu customers uh, and this time the media did get to get involved, uh, which was really cool. So we did get to see quite a lot of 
really well done up DMAXs uh, and MUXs, um, which if you did follow us on Instagram, you definitely could um, check those out. But yeah, so we started the first day at the Blue Rag Trail, then did some gold mining in Mayford, uh, then went to Mount Buffalo, (laughs) Mount Buller and Craig's Hut. So it was definitely a very jam-packed day, very long days, um, but highly recommend anyone who hasn't done Victoria properly, um, definitely venture up to the high country. Mm. I think my first off-roading experience was the Isuzu iVenture and uh, I absolutely loved it. Um, What was uh, the one thing that you came away with? That's such a good question. I think um, obviously not sponsored but I would love an MUX. Um, They're just great. No, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Jake 20 at the catch. We we, we know that Isuzu PR and marketing actually listen to this podcast. So if you are listening. (laughs) I'm asking. I told him I was going to give him a shout out. So this one's for you. Um, No, honestly, uh, it's, it's really all about your mindset. I think once you learn the basics and thankfully we had such an amazing team at Isuzu. So we had um, Cody and Dave who are four wheel drive experts and Mark and Stace who were absolute legends the whole time. And anytime you were a little bit unsure of what to do or, you know, even your tire pressure, um, what it should be going up and down hills Mm -hmm. and things like that. Like the team was absolutely incredible. Um, There was a mix of experience on the trip uh, which was good because obviously depending on the trails and and the type of terrain we were going through um, you kind of be able to follow who was in front of you or kind of lead who was behind you if they weren't too sure Um, we did some water crossings which um, yeah that's an experience if anyone has ever not done a water crossing and doing one for the first time with like 50 cameras in your face it's That's terrifying. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, highly recommend. Uh, but it's once in a lifetime. Would not want to do it again. Um, but yeah, look, I think a few takeaways is definitely it's it's a very niche thing that um, only Isuzu do for their customers, um, which I think is such a big opportunity. I think with the new Amarok coming out and obviously the Ranger, um, I think a lot of people are taking advantage of that four wheel drive. Um, experience in Australia. So Isuzu have really kind of captured uh, a really good audience to take on. Um, they also do like one day uh, training with their um, MUX and DMAX customers. Um, so if you guys do, anyone listening does have uh, an Isuzu and want to get on that training, um, you can visit the Isuzu website um, and sign up for the one day courses uh, as well as the iVenture Club. So they normally do one to two iVenture Club uh, multi-day trips a year Um, and it's really good to get involved. They do charge about $2,000 per car um, but it does include quite a lot of stuff um, and you're in really good hands when you do go. Hmm. And you learn so much. You you learn to get the most out of your car which is I think a really fantastic thing that they're offering. Yeah, Good stuff. Um, Have you written a story about it? Can we see photos and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, so I uh, actually got some photos that came through today. So if you are listening, you can head to the Car Expert Instagram um, or my Instagram page and I will be posting those up there. There will be a story following soon. So stand by on the website um, when you – When that does go live, I'm sure we'll let you know. Um, But, yes, definitely highly recommend. It was, yeah, amazing. Oh, so glad you – so glad to hear you had good fun, Jade. Um, Thanks for staying a little bit longer this week. We'll we'll chat to you next week. Thanks, Mandy. It was a pleasure and chat to you next week. 
Now, Scully, late last year you had a frustratingly brief drive of the Cupra Born, but uh, now we've had that chance to spend a little bit more time with it. And, Jay, you're the man this time. Um, I know you're yes, a bit of a fan of. Uh, <laughs> I know you're a bit of a fan of uh, Cupra. So, uh, did the Born impress you? The, everything about the Bourne event impressed me, actually, because we, they, they had this massive launch party that they invited me to as well in Canberra, and when I had oh. a very good time, and I'll leave it at that because it, it was a good night. And they they had like this partnership with um, the Ministry of Sound, and they had like this classical orchestra come out and play like '90s disco beats and like people singing, what? and it was it was incredible. I felt like I was in a movie because we like it was in this um, I can't remember what the name of the place is called, but this is really big building um, at top of the mountain in Canberra, which is like a museum or a, this function center or whatever and at night it's the entire landscape is pitch black and so as we were being driven up through the park national park coming up to it and you can see like the spotlights coming out of the building there's like you know lights and there's a born outside lit up and there's like Cooper. James, the car, the car, James, uh, James, yes, James, the yes. car, the car. Yeah, yeah, the car, the car, the car, the car. So before I went to that, I drove the car and um, we we had a really wonderful drive route through the outskirts of Canberra into like the mountain areas. Now, I've only been to Canberra once before this and did the T-Rock launch out that way and we were very similar roads but much nicer weather and I could actually see things where they were and, you know, you go over some of the landscape and there's like running water and anyway, it's beautiful nice. and, but, but a really good test bed to test a vehicle that's pitched as a more you know engaging and sporty offering because one of the big things that Cooper is saying about this car is that you know it is an electric hot hatch and that was probably one of the main things that I wanted to test on this launch because the roads were there and also um, Cooper's priced this vehicle at 59990 which is not necessarily bargain basement money, but it is sort of their flagship drivetrain and, and spec offering that they offer globally. And it's it's achieved price parity with the equivalent Leon plug-in hybrid as well as the top spec VZX, which runs a 220 kilowatt turbo petrol engine. So now a Cooper customer can walk in and say, I want a hot hatch, but what do you want? Or do I want a 170 kilowatt rear wheel drive EV? Do I want a 180 kilowatt front wheel drive plug-in hybrid? Or do I want a 221 kilowatt hardcore like track monster hatchback? So, you know, you've got three three pathways. In, in, for this particular one, I was really interested to see because, you know, this is the first time that we've seen a, a Volkswagen Group MEB car come here. What is MEB? It's Volkswagen's compact modular architecture for electric vehicles. It underpins everything from the Volkswagen ID3 and ID4 to the Cooper Born, Skoda Enyaq, Audi Q4 e-tron. You know, it's, it's really proliferated across the group now. So, you know, we've seen a lot of stuff from overseas about this platform. I have – the Born is still a fairly recent – launch i think it only launched in europe in the past year and so um you know i was, I was keen to see how it, it felt we i can't remember the names of the roads but there were some really twisty high speed mountain roads that we went through the landscape was beautiful and you know i was keen to see how you know having a heavy battery pack in a fairly compact car would go and it's it's obviously rear wheel drive so we haven't seen a lot of compact rear wheel drive hatchbacks in a long time probably since the the last one series and so you know we left the canberra airport and we're driving around town and it's all very smooth very quiet as you expect from like a Volkswagen product. Then when things dialed up, I was actually really surprised with how much fun you could have with this car. Um, there's two wheel and tire packages that you can get. So the standard car comes with a 19-inch wheel and uh, eco tires. Uh, so they're low rolling resistance and it helps you achieve that 511 kilometer claimed range, which Cooper really likes to remind us um, the Bourne is the only uh, 
electric vehicle under the 60 grand barrier that offers over 500 Ks of WLTP range. Um, and so that you can also option a performance package, which gives you a 20 millimeter wider tire and wheel. Um, and it's also got uh, Michelin Pilot Sport 4 tires instead of the standard Eco tire. And we, we got to drive both cars back to back through some of these winding roads. And it was quite interesting to see how, even though there was you know a noticeable difference in, in grip and contact patch between the two different packages, the base car is already so good that you probably don't even need to go for that bigger wheel and sacrifice you know some 40Ks of range. Um, it's a really, really fun little car to drive. The steering's really dialed in. Um, it turns in nicely. The, the, rear, the rear electric motor likes to sort of hook the back around and, and turn you in. And it's got this really nice classic rear drive balance that while it's not, say, you know, the return of the $60,000 BMW M140i that we, we, we cherish from back in the day, it's sort of like a... A one two five in that it's you know it's it's quick enough. Um, it's a really fun car to drive, sort of like that enthusiast one that it's like it's not the fastest, but it's like it's a lot of fun. And you know, it, once you get some people might find the looks a little bit polarizing. It's got a, quite a little angry little face, and it looks like it's got a little bulbous nose on it, and the wheel, the tornado or typhoon looking wheels might be a. Uh, an acquired taste and the copper highlights as well. But, you know, it's a spacious little thing. It's got good back seat space, a decent boot, um, and it's it's well-sized for urban driving and you can also take it out of the city and have a bit of fun. I'm curious about the interior, JWO, because a lot of the international reviews of MEB cars in general have been very critical of the tech. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the born like on the inside when you start poking and prodding, I suppose, not buttons, but touchscreens? Yeah, so the the interior is a little bit different to what you might expect because I know that um, Volkswagen's approach to their MEB stuff is very Spartan, so it's very open plan, very basic in terms of how it's designed and finished. Um, Cooper's gone a little bit of done a little bit more effort in adding some more soft touch areas. So there's like a, a center tunnel console thingy that's like padded, and um, you've got like the copper stitching and copper highlights throughout the cabin. There's a like a leatherette dash top that's soft touch, but the door trims are still predominantly hard plastic, which isn't that great in terms of the infotainment tech. It runs effectively the same display unit as the other Cooper models in um, from th- that are based on the MQB Evo architecture. That's, so that's Leon and Formentor. The tech is based on a slightly older um, platform and therefore doesn't have the new interior design yet. And um, it's a really big, lovely 12-inch screen. It's still got those funky little um, touch capacitive sliders for temperature controls. But as we've tested in other Cooper products, because they have like um, dedicated shortcuts littered throughout the screen for some of these functions a little bit more user-friendly than what I found in um, equivalent Volkswagens or even Skodas and um, the 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 embedded software is fine it's really logically laid out it responds quickly to inputs and all of that kind of stuff but oddly we actually miss out on some features like satellite navigation and wireless smartphone mirroring in Australia and I quizzed the Cooper team on this and it's because it has something to do with the Cooper born and the other MEB vehicles I'm assuming were all primarily developed as connected vehicles. So they had, you know, the, all the necessarily modules and all that kind of thing to have a, a constant internet connection and, you know, sending all this informa- data to and from the vehicle. And so I think the Volkswagen Group has been a bit slow to bring in connected services across its lineup in Australia. Audi is the only brand of its um, within its portfolio that offers these kind of features. But even then you can't like remote unlock and start the car to my knowledge. It's just more like based around the infotainment system 
uh, and, and related services. So uh, Cooper's team said that basically the factory engineered a version of the Bourne that doesn't have these features and therefore it means that you miss out on some of that stuff. So it's a shame that we don't get satellite navigation and wireless smartphone mirroring. They're, they're good features to have and they're, you know, um, features that we've praised in other Cooper models. But the the base system itself works fine. Um, and in, even though you have to wire your phone in to, to use smartphone mirroring, it's got like a fun little cradle in the central console with a gap to put your cable through. So it doesn't look like a, an eyesore when you have things plugged in. Uh, but it also means that, you know, we can't get directions properly projected into your like little instrument cluster which again there's the little instrument cluster that's in these new MAB products it's a five inch screen rather than the 10 inch ones that we're used to from the other products so it looks a little bit basic and there's no head-up display in Australian models either there's a cool augmented reality head-up display that you can get overseas which again I assume is um, tied to the connected vehicle stuff and um, it's it's just a it's fine and it's serviceable and whatever, but I guess the, it may not wow you the same way that some of the other products do because you get into like a Formental, for example, and it's like fully decked out with everything and it looks great. And um, with the Bourne, it sort of has that MEB um, thing where it's a little bit more pared back and not quite Spartan, but, you know, you can dress it up with the interior pack. It gives you like a, a petrol blue interior or, sorry, Aurora blue in the Bourne, not petrol blue like the other cars. And it's got like a, a lovely um, suede interior finish um, the standard car gets a, a, a black fabric that's called Sequel or Sequel. I think that's how you pronounce it. Basically, it's a fabric that's um, sourced from or manufactured from recycled plastics that are fished out of the Mediterranean. So there's like a really fun little oh, wow. story there. Yeah, and so I think there's a lot of um, waste pollution in the Mediterranean around Barcelona. So someone decided to start fishing it out and making textiles out of it. And um, the the lead of um, design from Cooper, who was actually present on the launch, they had a couple of their global executives fly out, which is very unusual for an Australian launch these days. You don't really get a lot of the big execs from these companies coming out here. But she was um, really trying to drive home that there's a lot of sustainable thinking within the Bourne's construction, both in terms of materials and, you know, aerodynamic efficiencies and all that kind of thing. And um, even the the high-spec suede interior that you get with the interior package has a, a portion of um, sustainable materials used throughout. So there's cool little touches like that as well as the um, the copper highlights and the all the little etched geometric shapes throughout the interior that are quite visually interesting that sort of just dress it up a little bit and make it feel a little special because some of the electric cars at this price point when you think about what's available right now you even even down to something like a tesla model 3 or you know a nissan leaf they're they're interiors are so simple that while there is a beauty and an appreciation for absolute simplicity that that still ergonomically works i think there's still something to be said for a car that you can sort of set, sit in and be like oh this is really nice um so yeah how did you um find the, the build quality inside and out yeah, it, it felt pretty well screwed together. I, I will say that it's it's not not necessarily as high end feeling as something like a Leon or a Formentor, like I, I said before. Um, but it does have a very similar sort of layout and design to those cars. So even if some of the finer details aren't quite as nice, it definitely feels more upmarket than something like. I keep on coming back to something like a Nissan Leaf because the Nissan Leaf E Plus is still slightly more expensive and feels nowhere near as modern or as well finished. Um, same goes for the current um, Hyundai Kona Electric, for example. So there's a few cars at the price point where, you know, when you look at attainable electric vehicles, um, 
they're sort of a bit disappointing in how they're furnished. Um, you look at the BYD Addo 3 is a standout in the sense that it's quite visually exciting. There's a lot of padded surfaces and things like that. feels a little bit more upmarket. When you look at like the MG ZSEV, the Nissan Leaf, the Hyundai Kona, um, the and there's a few others in there as well, they just don't quite feel as upmarket as they should for the money that they're charging. Um, this, this felt well built there are still certainly elements that could be improved and i think what we've seen with the meb products is that um each respective company is open to improving them over time so um volkswagen will be launching an id3 with a much nicer interior in australia um next year uh which was a key complaint of the old one and i imagine that we'll start seeing um these things roll on to other products in the future. But as it is, I think it definitely feels nicer than most of what it's um, competing against in terms of fit and finish and design. Um, is it perfect? Maybe not, but, you know, it's definitely it's definitely one of the better ones and it, it's, a, uh, it's, it's well packaged as well. So I can sit behind myself pretty comfortably. Um, a lot of uh, compact EVs, particularly ones that are Build as passenger cars and not crossovers. Um, they can be quite compromised in the back and the boot because the if they especially if they're based on internal combustion platforms, it means that the floor pan is quite high. And then if you're sitting in the back behind a tall driver, you're not only restricted in terms of leg and knee room, you've also got your knees up against your teeth. Um, this one you could sort of feel that that higher floor a little bit, but I could I could see myself being able to sit behind my own seat with plenty of room and also be fairly comfortable back there for a period of time. Um, it's also worth noting that if you go for either of the option packages that the Bourne offers, you remove the center rear seat. So as standard, it's a five-seater, um, but if you get a, a, either of the option packages, it removes that middle seat and seat belt and instead has like a little um, like storage nook in the seat base and it yeah, removes that center seat belt. So that's something to consider. I think it's specific to the large battery variant that we get in Australia. I think it's something to do with like axle loading or something like that. So once you have certain level of options and kit on it, it means that you can't have a the, the capacity for five seats. Uh, the boot is also quite large. It's 385 litres, which is not Tesla Model 3 good, but it's about the same that you'll get out of a small crossover or something like a Volkswagen Golf. Um, so, you know, it's sort of that, again, that plays to that equivalent um, out of several different options. Like you look at a light, you can get a Leon or a, a Born, and you're not necessarily sacrificing interior packaging if you go for either or. Um, so it's got a decent, decent boot. Um, the seats fold down. Um, it's got good back seat space. Is a nice big window glass house. Sorry, so that you can see out of it. It's not. It hasn't got some crazy tapered window line that means that kids will get car sick. Um, so yeah, it's 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 a really interesting. Like it looks interesting, and it, it. But at least there's a level of practicality and thought into, you know, daily use um, in it. That means that it's not severely compromised in in terms of once you get behind the first row. Because <laughs> I think a lot yeah. of a lot of cars really focus on the front occupants these days and forget about the back. And at least this one, you can see yourself being able to say, oh, "I've got two kids, I can put them in the back," or "You've got teenagers, or you've got pets, that kind of thing." It, this will do those mundane tasks just fine. Uh, Joe, what car expert rating did you give it? Uh, it's got an overall rating from me of 8.3. The The category store, score breakdown is on the review, so you can go see where it, where its strengths and weaknesses are. But I think it's a, a really good overall offering and um, I think it deserves to do well in Australia. They've already sold over 500 of them, so you know we we'll, might start seeing them on the roads very soon. That brings it in to this week's podcast. Where's the team off to next week, Scully? So next week is a reasonably quiet week in the context of normal weeks. Um, James is off to Sydney to drive the new Subaru Crosstrek. And then we have a lot of car pickups for a project we're just not quite going to talk about yet. 
Ah, all right then. <laughs> um, Jack, what cars have we got coming up next week? Uh, so in Melbourne, we've got the Volkswagen Tiguan All Space 132 TSI Life. Let me just breathe for a second. Um, then we've got the Ford Everest Ambiente 4x2, so the very, very base one with two-wheel drive. We've got a Mazda CX-5 G35 Akira, which is the new code name for the Turbo one. We've also got a Kia Sportage GT Line Diesel All-Wheel Drive, which you actually can't buy at the moment. If you check our news section right now, we've got a story on that. Uh, we're also testing the brand new Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland and five-seater, which is just about to launch in Australia. We also have a brand new Amarok, um, which will have Paul will have a video live on the site and Scott just went to the launch, so he'll have a written review on the site soon. Um, in Sydney, we also have a couple of cars. So we have a Toyota Kluger um, Turbo. I'm not sure which spec I booked for them, but <laughs> I just was told of the Turbo. <laughs> <laughs> and Tony's also driving a Cooper 4 Mentor VZX just to continue that Cooper theme for this week. That's going to be his current favorite car. He'll, he'll want to come on the podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. He'll just be For like, sure. you, I know this isn't a video podcast. We need to start doing video <laughs> podcasts, Mandy, so we can start doing the hand <laughs> thing. Yes. <laughs> All right. That wraps up everything here. Uh, Scott Colley and James Wong, thank you. Thanks, Thanks Mandy. Mandy.